Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. You can find that on page 784 in the blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you. I'll read there in a minute. This morning we're continuing in our sermon series on the New Testament book of Acts. It's the account of the early church, its birth, its growth, its expansion. And the gospel of Jesus has um, spread outward from Jerusalem into the surrounding regions. And now, in today's passage, it crosses into another continent, onto Europe. The disciples don't know the significance of this, but later centuries will show how incredibly significant this is because from Europe, the gospel will launch through uh, an amazing missionary effort to North and South America, to Asia, to Africa, truly to the ends of the earth, fulfilling Jesus' promise to send his people. Let's read Acts 16, starting in verse 6. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We, we marvel at the, the detail of your word that is preserved for us. We're thankful, Lord, that we can peek in on this scene from the first century and see your gospel going forth to all nations. Speak to us today, Lord. Call us to action. Cause us to trust in you like Paul and Silas because you are worthy of all trust. You're the sovereign king, and you're at work saving. Use us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we, we notice is closed doors. Take a look at this map. Paul and his see, a team set out from Antioch in Syria, which is on the right side uh, in green, and their plan is to return to the city's in towns that they had visited on the, on the first missionary journey um, where they had planted churches. They want to go back and strengthen and encourage the believers. And uh, right at the top of the blue arrow or purple arrow is Lystra. When they get to Lystra, the natural path would have been to head west on the dotted line that I created through the Lycus Valley to Laodicea and eventually to Ephesus on the coast. But the Spirit tells them somehow, don't preach in Asia. Asia Minor. Uh, the, the label Asia above is a little bit high, uh, according to other maps. And so they head north. But then they, uh, the Spirit says, don't head into Bithynia, which is in the purple. So they head west, and they hit a dead end at Troas. Can't go down, can't go up. A GNC right in front of them. Wouldn't you get frustrated? God, I, I'm trying to serve you, and you're not helping. Either get on board or, with all due respect, get out of the way. You know, we, we, we raised funds, we set aside our lives, we, we uh, enlisted help, and you're closing doors. And all we want to do is, is minister, is tell people about Jesus. How do you tend to react when God says no? Or when he's silent and you don't know what the answer is. Frustration's just the beginning, isn't it? So often people move past frustration and begin to attribute ill will towards God. When you hit closed door after closed door, you're unemployed and the interviews keep resulting in dead ends, no callback. You were this, this close, no fruit. You ask for healing and God doesn't fix what's wrong with your own body or in the life of a loved one. You're desperate to escape some circumstance and God isn't making a clear path ahead quickly enough for you to follow down to your heart's content. Frustration is a given. But so often, people take that to the next level and decide that faith isn't worth it. 
that prayer doesn't work. Worst, attributing to God some lack of love. He doesn't care. He's not interested in what's going on in my life, in my suffering, in my pain. So what do we make of this statement that Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount? He says this in Matthew chapter 7. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? That comes right after Jesus saying, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Maybe when you ask and you get a no, it's because our Heavenly Father refuses to give you a snake. That's not good. I won't provide what you're asking for right now because it's to your detriment, not to your fulfillment, not for your health. He he wants to nurture life, not snuff it out. He wants to give you something far more satisfying And he loves you too much to settle for substitutes. Could it be that that kind of loving intention is behind a no or silence when you ask, when you pray? Suppose you lived in 1907 and your 16-year-old expressed the wish that one day soon he'd have his own horse. Now, back in the day, a horse wasn't just a pet. It wasn't, uh, you know, you didn't have horses because... Um, you were just an animal lover. Horses were a primary means of transportation. This young man wanted to get around, wanted to have independence. He wanted to go exploring with his friends. And suppose a year later in 1908, instead you decided to buy him a Model T Ford. Do you think he would say, a car? That's not what I wanted. (laughs) I didn't ask for a car. I asked for a horse. Now, he might be such an animal lover that there'd be a smidge of disappointment, but Chances are, instead, he would see that the gift is a far richer answer to his request than he would have even ever dreamed. He'd see it as greater satisfaction. He'd see it as as richer provision, not a, a no or a cheap substitute. So much of the importance of prayer lies in the humility that it requires and the humility that it then cultivates in the person praying. But so often, isn't this the case, humility doesn't make its initial appearance until the smartest, most logical, strategic, responsible, hardest-working efforts on your part are tried and found to not work. They don't provide you with the result you're looking for. They don't achieve the goal that you desire. And only then does humility begin to make its appearance and maybe you ask for help. And if you ask for help vertically, it's called prayer. And if uh, you are praying God-honoring, biblical kind of prayers, then prayer not only requires humility to get to it in the first place, but prayer begins to cultivate deeper humility as you engage in prayer because biblical prayer inevitably sounds like this. God, you know all things, but I am ignorant. You have perfect eyesight, spiritually speaking, vision rather, but I'm nearsighted. I 
I'm practically blind. You love, but I am so selfish. You have, but I lack, and I need what you can give. God says this through Isaiah the prophet. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As is so often the case in the Bible, God says, you know, if you didn't get it the first time, let me say it again. (laughs) Uh, The repetition for emphasis. His ways are different. Do we think that we can understand the ways of God even when we ask for something that we assume is a good gift? Paul himself adds this in 1 Corinthians. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Here's another implication of these verses, um, maybe a little bit of a tangent, but it's, it's what I call the enemy of the good. I probably got that phrase from somewhere. I couldn't, couldn't figure out where. But the enemy of the good is, is something that I use often in ministry leadership. Um, if we don't wrestle with and value healthy and regular no's in our life, no answers, then, then we'll never get to God's best yes so Paul and Silas and his team preaching in Asia or Bithynia, it's a good thing. Who could argue with that intent, that plan, that, that desire? Um, what's wrong with that? Only that God had something better and, in fact, best in mind for this missionary team. I, I doubt Paul and his, and his uh, com- companions bumped their noses against some invisible force field, you know, trying to go this way, oh, no, not that way, and oh, not this way, and and the only way we can squeeze through this invisible corridor is to head this way. I doubt it happened that way. I I, I would assume that the Spirit was laying thoughts and burdens and concerns and a restlessness on their hearts, and when they woke up in the morning, they compared notes over breakfast, and they're thinking, well, uh, God must not be leading us that way, and uh, let's go this way. They could have easily dismissed those spirit promptings by overruling them with human wisdom. We're preaching the gospel. <laughs> These people don't know it. Of course it's a good thing. You know, never mind. Let's, let's just ignore the, the, the sense that we have. It, it just must be fear. It must be uh, apprehension. It, it must be worry about what we're going to find there. Maybe we're being wimps. What's wrong with ministering there? In our ministry leadership here at GRC, we're constantly bombarded with good opportunities, with people and ministries and partners and missions efforts that are needy, that are good, and we're glad for that. We're glad that people know that they can come to GRC, but sometimes saying no is the most difficult thing to do in order to patiently look for and wait for God to show us what is best. If you don't keep that in mind, you'll always feel guilty if you say no. But if you're discerning with humility, God, what would you have us best invest our lives and our time and our resources towards? Maybe that gives you a better answer. Well, in verse 9, Paul gets a resounding yes from God in a dream. Go to Macedonia. Cross over into a new frontier. The gospel reaches Europe for the first time. Uh, secondly, we see open hearts. In Philippi, 
um, another map here, above the purple star now, moved to the top left. That's where Philippi is. Paul and Silas go out to the river where they expect to find people gathered for prayer. These would have been God-fearing Gentiles. That's a term that's used in the scripture and in history books to describe um, people who didn't grow up in the Jewish faith, who are learning about the God of Israel, reading the Old Testament scriptures, praying. They have some measure of belief, but they're not converted, and they're not necessarily welcome in the synagogue. We, we find women here perhaps because um, in a Roman colony there wasn't a synagogue yet, and a, and a synagogue required 10 men, 10 males to begin. And so perhaps these women are, are sort of the, on the frontier, and, and, and they're what we call seekers. Paul and his team go out there to the river where they'd expect to find a place of prayer, and they run into Lydia. She's from Asia Minor, ironically, where God said, don't go. She's a dealer of purple cloth. This would have been high-end fashion. And so we can safely um, guess that she was a uh, fairly successful businesswoman. Paul shares a message, preaches a sermon. And we read verse 14, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Notice how she comes to faith. She doesn't come to faith all on her own. God chooses in his wisdom to send someone to her to verbally proclaim the risen Savior Jesus, and he enables her to receive those words by faith, which brings about her genuine conversion. Now, at the same time, neither was God, um, you know, God did not have his hands tied behind his back or his fingers crossed hoping that Paul would make it, hoping that Paul would say yes to this commission. You know, God would not have been scratching his head if Paul uh, fell and broke his leg and never made it to Philippi. You know, what am I going to do now? Uh, On one hand, God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He accomplishes what he wills. On the other hand, in the mystery of his will, he chooses to utilize human responsibility. He, he, He chooses in his wisdom to use fools like us, flawed sinners, to accomplish his perfect purposes. This is what we see over and over in Scripture and all throughout church history. God is the author of salvation. He brings it about. He gets all the credit. But in his mysterious will, he calls us to partner with him. That, by the way, is why we continue to have a five-week adult Christian ed class right here at 10 a.m. on evangelism. You know, I, I, I've been working in these little commercials, not because, um, you know, I, I just want to push this, but because this is what Acts is saturated with. It, it's right there. And, you know, you know people always say, we, our church needs to be a more of a, a, an Acts kind of church. Uh, I hear that here and there, not just at GRC, but out and about, you know. And, and the answer really from God is, well, that's a good desire. If you want to be an Acts kind of church, you need to do kind of uh, you need to engage in Acts kind of activities with an Acts kind of heart, which starts with the humility and dependence of prayer. Commercial number two, conveniently, Kingdom Prayers this Tuesday. You, you want to see Acts results at GRC? You need to, like Acts, get on your knees and ask and plead. And recognize that God has what we need. And the smartest and brightest and most gifted and skilled among us can't accomplish anything without Him. Prayer and evangelism, they go hand in hand. 
Each requires a humility and a dependence on God. And each recognizes that he does all things and he gets all the credit. Well, Lydia and her household believe and are baptized. And I can't resist. Were there any kids in this household? Even babies? They're all baptized. The answer is, honestly, we don't know. But there's a good chance that there were little ones, and if the whole household was baptized, they were not baptized because each of them understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and personally professed faith in Jesus Christ. They would have been baptized because it was consistent with Old Testament practice to apply the sign of God's promise upon the children of believing parents. No, no um, disconnect here, no, no discomfort. Lydia believes, we're told, and she and the members of her household are baptized. Resurrection power is at work in opening hearts. Thirdly, lastly, uh, freed prisoners. Later on, they go back to this place of prayer. It just so happens that a slave girl who has fortune-telling powers shows up and starts shouting at Paul and his team. Um, these are servants of God Most High. Now, if you were Greek, that would have just been a reference to Zeus. If you were Jew, that would have been reference to Yahweh, God of Israel. We don't know. Um, and she says they have the message of salvation. She keeps following them and, and, and shouting these things. And again, um, it, it could have meant a genie in a bottle. You know, this God will give you all that you desire. Or it could have been that somehow, like evil spirits who followed Jesus during his public ministry and knew who he was and what he was up to, it could have been a recognition on her part with spiritual insight, although from darkness, that these men carried the true message of salvation, um, freedom from sin. Well, Paul finally has enough. He turns around, casts out the evil spirit. In the name of the risen Savior, Jesus, resurrection power is at work. And there's lots of details here, so let me fast forward. The owners of this girl get upset because their primary income source, lucrative income source, is gone. Same word, the the evil spirit is gone and the income source is gone in in the original um, Greek. There's this emphasis here, it's gone. They they convince, these owners convince the city officials that Paul and Silas are... Um, a menace to society, and they have them thrown in prison and flogged. Um, a mob sort of convicts these guys, and they're thrown in jail, where at midnight a divine earthquake causes all the prison doors to open, and the jailer to figure, um, I might as well kill myself, Harry Carey, because uh, I'm going to pay the ultimate price for this security failure. And Paul shouts out, don't do it. We're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. And the jailer asks this marvelous question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Author and pastor Tom Wright offers this alternate translation. He thinks it's more along the lines of, Gentlemen, can you please tell me how I can get out of this mess? I think he's on to something. Because, you know, there's a chance that the jailer had this spiritual understanding Some commentators say, well, he probably was listening to Paul and Silas praying and singing. Maybe they were sharing a message of salvation with the rest of the prison. He could have had this sense of judgment and and, and asked these men, what must I do to be saved spiritually? But um, he might have just been thinking, I'm a dead man. 
my Roman bosses don't tolerate failure. Do you have any thoughts to share with me to get me out of this mess? Because, you know, the worst case is I listen to you for three minutes and then kill myself anyway. Gentlemen, can you please tell me how I can get out of this mess? Because save, what must I do to be saved, is the same word for heal or rescue. It doesn't necessarily have always a spiritual, supernatural connotation. The answer he gets from the apostles isn't different, it's deeper. It gets to the heart of his real problem. It gets to the core of why things are not the way they're supposed to be in the world and in particular in his life. And here's the question I want you to consider. As you're sitting right where you are this morning, in your life, what weighs most heavily on your heart and your mind? What, what, what would you say is your core problem? Maybe you'd say it's a strained relationship. But can you see with a gospel lens that the real solution is not just for that person to go away, for someone new to take their place, for the other person to say, I'm sorry, and everything's all better. The real solution starts with the greater reconciliation that you as a sinner need with a holy and just God. That relationship with which you've been created is not right. If you've placed your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have been reconciled to the judge of all the earth. And that has healing, reconciling power that you can then apply to your horizontal relationships, every other relationship. You have power to forgive more readily when you've been wronged because you've been forgiven much. You have power to understand and receive forgiveness back. You, you have uh, strength in your identity to say, I'm sorry, I messed up, I hurt you, will you forgive me? And if you haven't yet trusted Christ, then no other relationship is more important to fix and to heal than this vertical one with God, the judge himself. Maybe you'd say what's heaviest on your heart is loneliness. Can you see with gospel eyes that the real solution is not a spouse or a different spouse or a, a set of friends that are richer uh, than the ones you have, more fun to hang out with? What's best for you is to know that through faith in Christ, you have belonging in the very family of God, that he promises you as his greatest gift, the eternal intimacy of being with him face-to-face -face in His presence that satisfies the depths of your heart. Maybe um, it's work or finances or, or big decision or problems that just won't go away one after the other. Can you see that the real solution is not merely a fix to your circumstances? It's not just a bump in your income so that you have more money to, to fix everything, but what's best for you is to see from Romans chapter 8 we actually sung this. I didn't realize this was such a part of that, that um, hymn. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If you trust in Jesus, then you trust that he has solved the very um, depths of your, pro uh, of your uh, problems eternal judgment due upon your sin, if you can trust Him with your soul and forever, can you not trust Him to 
strengthen you to deal with life's struggles, even the biggest of them. If he loves you that much, does he not love you to care for you? If he rescued you, would he just dismiss you as irrelevant? Or is that a sign, Paul would say, that he will carry on to completion what he began? Whatever the jailer was asking of Paul, we don't know. What he got was really what he needed to hear. What he got was the true answer to his deepest problems. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Submit your life to the king who loves perfectly, who knows fully, and jailer, even if your head is cut off because you failed or your bosses think you failed, Jesus is the risen Savior, and he promises resurrection life to all of his people. That's the kind of trust that Paul and Silas demonstrated, isn't it? They modeled it in prison. At midnight, verse 25, they're praying and singing hymns. And the other prisoners are listening to them. They had just been severely beaten. They were half naked. They, were, um, they had wounds that had never been washed. And they're singing joyfully. There's a good chance that the other prisoners listening to them had, uh, were living lives that were not very much exposed to beauty or peace or contentment. It's very likely when you get thrown into Roman prison that, you know, the justice system is not going to be kind to you. It's not going to provide leniency, amnesty, you know. Um, you just hope that you don't have to die this way because that was the most torturous way to go. And here they are hearing praise flow out of the peace-filled hearts of the latest prisoners to come in. This is a taste of life renewal in the midst of darkness and death and hopelessness. Resurrection power is at work even when these guys are in jail with little hope. Through faith, the jailer was washed by the blood of Jesus. His sins were forgiven. And then the jailer washes the wounds of Paul and Silas, verse 33. And then immediately, same verse, he and all his family um, experience the sacramental washing of baptism when Paul and Silas um, uh, pour water over them. The headline, Prisoners Freed, isn't really about Paul and Silas because they're, they're largely unconcerned where they are. They're, they're ministering the gospel. They're praising. And, and nor does it concern Luke, the author of Acts. He just reports what's going on. The headline, Prisoners Freed, the greater story is about the slave girl freed from the prison of evil spirits. And the greater story is the jailer, whose job it was to prevent freedom, ironically, who is himself freed from unbelief, from the prison of spiritual death apart from Christ. Resurrection power is at work. These are so typical in the kingdom of God that is an upside-down kingdom. The successful and wealthy like Lydia come to discover what true treasure really means. Life in Christ. Men who are proclaiming life, Paul and Silas, are beaten and thrown in prison, headed towards death 
a Roman jailer throws a feast in the middle of the night for these two prisoners um, who are now brothers when they were just his job hours previously, all because God became man in the person of Jesus, all because the glorious king willingly took upon himself humility in his coming and in his death that would upside-down kingdom bring life to everyone who trusts in him. The more accurate statement would be this, wouldn't it? The gospel is not an upside-down message. But this upside-down kingdom, this message of the gospel, is alone what can turn your life right side up. Whatever's weighing on your heart. Don't look to these circumstantial fixes. Don't look to these fake substitutes. If you look to the risen Savior Jesus, whatever it is, jailer about to pay the ultimate price for his so-called failure will be made new, will be turned right because Jesus is alive. He walked out of the tomb. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work. Will you trust in this resurrected King to make you new? to provide all that you need. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, our hearts are heavy. If not for our own problems, for the problems of the world, for natural disaster victims, for refugees, for victims of trafficking, for war-torn regions, for family and friends who are suffering from serious illness, Lord, we do pray for daily bread. We pray for you to apply mercy and grace to these particular situations. But ultimately, Lord, we trust you. The reason we pray is because you are the God who raises the dead and you promise that through Jesus you are making all things new. Give us such faith. And then call us onto your mission to share this best of news with the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.